Well, good morning, boys and girls. You may have already heard the story of the guy who went to the construction site for the first day on the job, and he was getting introduced to everybody else that was there, and he's like, so what do you do? Well, I'm the bulldozer driver. Oh, what do you do? I'm the backhoe guy. Oh, what do you do? Well, I drive the dump truck. Oh. And he says, so the guy says, so what do you do? He says, well, I'm the Mombat guy. He said, the Mombat guy? He said, what do you do? Well, I'm the guy who stands there and says, Mombat, 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 Cricket, Tough Crowd. Well, we're in this series, number three, in a series of, of six messages, A Better Way to Pray. And by better, I just mean a better way to pray than a lot of us, I think, have been taught to pray or have discovered to pray on our own steam. And my teaching to you so far has been your better way to pray begins by fully embracing your place as a son or daughter of the living God. That's where it begins, by fully embracing the reality that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, he paid everything that there was to be paid so that you could be a son or a daughter of the living God. That what Jesus did for us was to make a place for us at the Father's table as sons and daughters of God, and that nothing can take that away from us. So that your place at the Father's table is the same on your really good days as it is on your really bad days. Because your place in the family isn't affected by what you do. Yeah, thank you, Marie. You may go. So it begins there. If you want a better way to pray, then you've got to move away from you know, being someone who was led into the kingdom by accident or who found a loophole or who still belongs to the enemy. You've been set free from his agenda and you're sons and daughters of God now. Last week my teaching was that your better way to pray will be embraced when you begin to live in the vital reality that your account is prepaid by the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that the answers to your prayers are already there. They're in a cabinet, if you will, if you need to visualize something, or they're on a table or something, but the Bible teaches us that our Father in Heaven already knows what we're going to ask for, the specifics of our prayer, before we utter it. And what Jesus Christ did was to prepay that account so that when we pray, we're not trying to get God to do something that isn't already done. We're asking the Holy Spirit to use the Word of God and the dynamics of knowing Him through the Holy Spirit to show us the way to the answers to these prayers that have already been provided. And it changes everything. It changes everything. Well, today I'd like to share with you what I consider to be the third essential understanding in getting to your better way to pray, and that is to know that you are not the mediator of prayer. that you are not the mediator of prayer. But that there is only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ. You say, go ahead, collectively, duh. Then why aren't you praying that way? <laughs> Lord in heaven, we invite you to come and to open 
the power of this revelation to us to set us free from Old Testament legalistic ways of praying where we somehow think it depends on us or our righteousness or our diligence or our zeal or something. Take us to the foot of the cross, Lord, where we can pray with you as the only mediator between us and our holy heavenly Father. Father, I just pray that you'll use this time, the teaching of your word, to strip away these things that have come and taken the place of Jesus. Some of them have been accidental and some of them are kind of insidious and gradual, but I just pray that you'll raise our awareness to how much we're really trusting in you, Jesus, and, and, that, and how we can completely trust you as the mediator. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you, like Mike and me, will remember that 25 years ago there was a great kind of resurgence in prayer in the church, wasn't there? So everybody was getting all worked up about prayer again. We were all excited to be reengaging with God in prayer. It seemed like it was something that had been lost and uh, we were discovering it, and it was acting out in all kinds of ways. We were having all these early morning prayer meetings. How many of you went to 5 o'clock? <laughs> I said you may go. Uh, early morning prayer meetings, and we'd have 40 of them in a row at 5.30 in the morning. And if you who are spiritual, you'll be there, right? If you love God, you'll be there, right? All-night prayer meetings, remember those? Yeah, I know. They were fantastic for the time, were they not? A resurgence in fasting, and we were, we were discovering the power of fasting. And, and there, so there was, this, there was this resurgence of prayer, which was a very important and powerful thing in the life of the church. But one of the things that happened was there were phrases that came up out of that time. And one of the phrases was a call to, some of you will recognize this, to stand in the gap. You remember this? To stand in the gap. And it has a very compelling kind of imagery, doesn't it? It's like, man, don't you love God? And don't you love people who are lost? And let's stand in the gap. And so we had this imagery where it was somehow us to, up to us as intercessors to put ourselves in a place between whatever it was we were praying about and God and standing in the gap. Anybody remember this? Or can you, can you understand what it is I'm saying? Of course you can. Well, this comes from... Uh, from uh, a scripture in Ezekiel, Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, where the Bible, on behalf of the Lord's voice, says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. And there again is that compelling imagery that here it is that God seemed to at some point been looking for someone who would take that place, stand in the gap, between himself and the world. And it's like, who wouldn't do that, right? Who wouldn't say, yeah, I love God enough, and I love people enough to stand in the gap? It's a natural thing to try to answer that we'd be happy to do that. I'd be happy to stand in the gap for our nation. I'd be happy to stand in the gap for the lost. I'd be happy to stand in the gap for the sick. It's easy to buy all the way into that. And there's a lot of tempting kind of bravado in there, isn't there? Oh, you're going to come stand in the gap with me, brother? And there's a lot of kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, you who are spiritual will step over it. Trouble is that when we take it that way, we completely violate the context in which that verse is set. You know, context is kind of important. I don't know if you've picked that up from me yet or not. (laughs) But the context of Ezekiel chapter 22 is sobering. 
and the context in which that single verse is set is about the horrendous nature of the sin of Israel, how far they had wandered from God, how dangerously close to his judgment they were living. Because this was before Christ. This was before Jesus. And so they, they had worked themselves into a terrible place. And so the call of God is, who will stand in the gap between me and these people, a holy God and a sinful generation? Who will stand there? Why? What does it say? So that I will not have to destroy them. Because the, the holiness of God, by character, demands a response. Who will stand there? Who will stand there in the, in the, in the path of my wrath, my holy and righteous wrath? Who will stand there? Now, how many of you want to sign up to stand in the gap, right? And you're ahead of me. That's a prophetic reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, who stood in the gap for us. He stood in the gap, and he took all of the wrath of God, all of the punishment of God, all of the judgment of God was on him. The Lord has laid on him, the Bible says, the iniquity of us all. And he bore that sin because he loves us. And he bore that sin because he is the one and the only mediator. He's the only one who was ever qualified to stand in the gap. Does that make sense? So we see that in the Old Testament there's this kind of way of praying where people stand in the gap. They have, because it's before Jesus, they have to put themselves between God and this thing that they're praying about. How many of you got to Genesis yet? Anybody? It's good. It's in the beginning. And you get to this place where Abraham is pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he's kind of bargaining with God, isn't he? If you can find 50 righteous men, Lord, would you not spare the city? I don't know why he talks like this in my mind, but he does. But it's this, it's this really intriguing kind of dialogue between Abraham and... And God, and what you see is Abraham is the mediator. Abraham is the one who's standing between the city and God. And he talks them down. He talks them down, and he's the mediator. And that's the Old Testament model of prayer. Why? Because it was before Jesus Christ came. But a lot happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world on Calvary. For one thing, all of the Old Testament law was perfectly fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to, we don't have to concern ourselves with the details of the 631 Levitical laws of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of that. That's good news, isn't it? He, he, now, he didn't say, I came to abolish them. He didn't say, hey, gloves are off, do what you want. But he said, I'll fulfill that for you, and by my spirit you will bear fruit, and you will bear a life that honors me. So make sure we keep that in balance. But Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled that. Another thing that Jesus Christ, that happened when Jesus died on the cross, was that there was an essential paradigm shift in the way that we pray. There was a shift from us, from the person in the Old Testament being the mediator, to Jesus Christ being the mediator, and then that changes then what prayer is for us. And it's part of a better way to pray that I want to talk to you about. You in? Okay. Turn your Bibles then to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. By the way, if you do not own a Bible, if you see Mike up here, he'll buy you one. He'll take you right to Lifeway store after, well, they're probably not open on Sundays, are they? I don't know. We'd love to provide you one if you do not own a Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Paul is here speaking to the younger Timothy, and he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Now, the context of this particular passage of Scripture is that Paul, who's kind of the senior apostle in the world, was writing to the younger Timothy. And what he's sharing in 1 and 2 Timothy are some truly essential aspects, both theologically and practically, of what it means to lead a a, a group of people. And so everything we find in 1 and 2 Timothy are really essential aspects basic stuff, and so he's making a very strong point in the context of this, that what, you know, no matter what you do, Timothy, make sure you understand there is, only one, there is only one way to God, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the context, and of things you might want to note is, first of all, that there are many ways to pray. In verse 1, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, and he kind of listed four different ways to pray right there, didn't he? He said there's different ways to pray. So what, what this tells us, there, there, there are many different, different ways to pray. And the, the power of that is in you being released from being handed a prayer and say, here, pray this. No, no, no. You don't have to pray a prayer that was written by somebody else. You pray what's in your heart. Now, if you can find something on the page that is a reflection of your heart, there can be life in that. I'm not throwing out the baby with the bath here. But I'm saying that, you, you know, you don't, Don't accept a way to pray from somebody else. Accept the principles of how to pray, and then find your own voice in prayer, because there are many, many ways to pray. And whatever the expression of your heart is, that's a good way to pray. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, he said, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. That's a whole separate teaching. But he says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. But he says, With all kinds of prayers and requests. And so he says, kinds, all kinds, plural, that there are many different ways to pray. So I, I hope that that's some liberty for you. It's okay. I'm sharing principles with you that you can apply and you can find your own voice in prayer. Second, notice that this passage says that it is important to pray for our leaders. In verse 2 it says that we, all these prayers be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It is an important, it is an an imperative, beloved, that we pray for our leaders. No matter what your politics are, no matter whether your guy or gal is in the spot you hoped for or not, it is still our obligation to pray for them. I don't know if your candidate is presently in office or not. And I've got a little news flash for you. Prepare to guess, but you are right now seated with people from the other party. <laughs> I know. We are not all the same. We are not a very politically vocal church here. 
I figure if we teach you the basics of knowing God and you search the scriptures and you search the issues, you'll come to excellent conclusions about how to exercise the power of your vote in this amazing experiment that we call democracy. But needless to say, whether you come out happy or sad on election day, your responsibility the next morning is exactly the same, and that's to pray for those who are in leadership. Pray for them. Imagine the weight of the decisions that they're making to try to create policy that will develop into a just democratic society. Imagine the weight on their shoulders. What's going to happen if you don't pray for them? What's going to happen if God doesn't help them? That's a terrible thought, isn't it? And so we're called to to pray for our leaders. Third, this passage says that authentic prayer, I love this, increases the pleasure of God. In verse 3, it says, This is good and pleases God our Savior. I don't know how much you think about the emotion of God, but we see it throughout Scripture, do we not? A range of expressed emotions throughout Scripture. Are we not created in the image of God? Are we not also emotional people? So we understand from this that God, though he's perfect, has, he's not controlled by his emotions, but he has a range of emotions. Of emotions. And these range of emotions uh, include pleasure. And it says that when we pray authentically from our hearts, when we pray authentically from our hearts, that God's pleasure is increased. He likes that. He likes that. I mean, how many of you had one of your kids do something that pleased you? I, I would think I'd see more hands than that. <laughs> no, never. And it increased your sense of pleasure, right? It didn't change your love for them, but it sure was pleasurable while they were doing that, right? It was pleasing to you. That's all right. And the Bible says that as we pray, as we pray from our own voice, then that pleases God. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six that Without faith, it's impossible to please God, to bring him pleasure, without faith. So that our faith expression to God in prayer is the core, is the core of bringing God pleasure. Now worship, as we sing our songs and that kind of thing to the Lord, those are just musical prayers, are they not? Really, worship is just musical praying. And so this all fits in together into bringing God pleasure. Fourth thing of note in this passage, I think, is that it's absolutely the will of God for all men to be saved. If you look uh, with me at verse 4 in the text, it says, Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? You don't ever have to worry about whether it's a good thing to pray for somebody who needs Christ. It's always God's will to be saved. And we should always be living out our lives as a demonstration of being witnesses of the things that we have seen and heard in the Lord, so that God can use that then as kind of the fodder of evangelism. It causes people to think. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then the last thing, and this is going to get a little theological for some of you, which will delight a few of you and maybe cause the others to check out i hope not but number five that this passage says that the purpose of the death of jesus christ was as much to provide a ransom for our rescue in a kingdom drama between god and satan as it was to provide propitiation for our sins before our holy god now if you'd like to go 
What? Feel free. Okay, great. So at the, at the core of the presentation of the cross, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ to the church, and this is true in the Protestant and the Roman Catholic Church, at the core of the presentation of the atonement of Christ, how we get right with God, is something called satisfaction. That God is satisfied by the blood of Christ, by the voluntary perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the Bible supports this view, doesn't it? That because Jesus' blood was perfect, that he was tempted, the Bible says, tempted in every way, yet what? Was without sin, right. Wish that would have come faster, but was without sin, that we understand him as the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist cried out about him. So that's a, a side of the atonement that is so critically important. That when you come to Christ, your sins are forgiven, your record is, exp- is expunged, right? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's good news, right? Okay, so that in this reality, that this is a, this is a true and accurate presentation of the atonement. But what we're missing is the other side of the atonement, which will affect the way that you live your life as a Christian. That, that while that side of the coin is absolutely true, there is another side of the coin called the ransom understanding of, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. That somehow, in the midst of a mysterious and fascinating drama, cosmic, eternal drama, that in this battle between God and Satan, where God is clearly the superior, by, by exponentially the superior, that he provided his son, Jesus Christ, as a ransom to set you free. See, Pat was born into captivity. Brother, you were born into captivity. You were born into bondage. This is what original sin is. You were born under the government of Satan. And it was through no particular fault of your parents because they too were born into the government of Satan. But part of the atonement was not only that the Lord provided a way for your sins to be forgiven, but he paid a price as a ransom so that you could be set free from the bondage of Satan, no longer belong to his government, and instead be adopted into the family of God and be free from the things that the devil had in mind for you. That's the other side of the atonement. That's part of the atonement. And unfortunately, that sort of dynamic expression that Jesus Christ has set you free is often kind of just sort of relinquished to those hyper-Pentecostals, you know, those people who really think that God's still doing stuff, right? And he absolutely is. And this scripture says, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus Christ paid a price to get you out of bondage. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said it himself. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we've got to get hold of this. Because it will affect the way that you walk out your walk. If you're only holding on to the satisfaction theory, or the satisfaction understanding of the atonement, which, didn't even, which wasn't even a thought, until the 12th century, when Anselm of Canterbury developed it for the Roman Catholic Church, that for the first thousand years of church history, everybody believed that the power of the atonement was in the ransom. But because of things that were happening organizationally in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, 
practically nothing good came out of the Middle Ages for the church, you might as well know. That what was developed was this other side, which was a way of controlling people. Because if you only live from the satisfaction side of the atonement, then you're always thinking about your sin. You're always thinking about, how can, I, how can I do better? I keep circling the drain. I keep circling the same drain. When, when will my grace run out? When will be the last time that I can say, God, forgive me? But when you embrace the power of the ransom in the atonement, you'll understand that God saved you to set you free and to empower you to live victoriously over the devil's agenda for yourself. And you need both sides. You need both sides. Now for the truly serious students of theology in the room, I will give you one more shout out for the best book I have ever read on this important subject, Christus Victor by Gustav Allen. And I have long been a student of historical theology. I have loved to read how our understanding of God as a people, as people of God, has developed over the centuries. This book, while challenging to you, while challenging, is the best theological book I've ever read. It's that good. Now, unless you're really ready to do the work, don't go, don't go buy this book, okay? I mean, if, if you're like Sarah Young, Jesus Calling is kind of hard for you, don't get this book, okay? Okay? That's a great book, by the way. I use it every day. But I'm just saying, for those of you who are serious, that's a great book for you to read, and you will understand the power of both sides of the atonement. And it will not only set you free, but it will equip you to be used by God to help others be free too. What time is it? The clock isn't working. Ten till? Okay. All right. I thought I was hungrier than that, but that's Okay. All right, so last thing I really want to sh- share with you is this. Is, it's in verse 5 really makes the point that I think is so important to make. Um, where it says, For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And the point that I just need you to grasp is that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between man and God. You've got to get this, not only for your salvation, the understanding and the embracing of your salvation, but also for your prayer life. And I'll show you the application here. But in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That was a pretty categorical statement. He was talking about heaven. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I do, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He said, I'll come back for you. And he said, you guys know the way, he's talking to his disciples, you guys know the way to the place that I'm going. Thomas speaks up and said, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one mediator between man and God, Jesus Christ. Now, before you go getting distracted about what the implications of this are for all the other religions of the world, don't... You can deal with that question very effectively through Scripture. But don't get distracted with, well, what does that mean for all these other people who believe all these other things? Don't let the devil distract you until you firmly establish the answer to this question. Are you fully trusting in Jesus Christ as the only mediator between you and God? It's got to start there. 
Not between the church and God, not between all these other guys and God, but between you and God. Are you fully trusting in Jesus Christ as the mediator between you and God? And when you say yes to that, and when you open yourself up to the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit, then you can deal with any question that comes to your mind, and God will help you to find answers for it. But are you trusting, are you trusting in Jesus, fully trusting in Jesus Christ as the only mediator between, between you and God? But it's um, also in your prayer life. When you pray, when you pray, I'm asking you, are you leaving it with Jesus? Or does this somehow depend on you? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I was so totally there at one point earlier in my walk. that man, I had to pray more. I had to pray harder. I had to pray better in terms of, you know, the efficiency of my prayer, the understanding of my prayer. I needed more faith. All these things would roll through my mind as to why aren't these things happening. Maybe you've never had that problem before. Maybe you've never been a victim of that stuff. Get caught up in what this teacher's saying about this and that teacher's saying about that. And uh, I had to come to the place of understanding this. Do I want to be an Old Testament prayer or a New Testament prayer? Which side of the cross do I want to pray from? Do I want to pray on Abraham's side? Dealing with God? Do I want to pray on this side of the cross where Jesus Christ is victorious over sin and death and he's the only mediator between me and God? Because when that's true, when that's true, then I can leave all of my prayer requests at his feet and it doesn't depend on me. I can leave them at the foot of the cross and it no longer depends on me. When by faith I leave these things at the foot of the cross, the only one who can connect me with God, then the prayer life lights up. A couple of years ago, I had a very sobering experience in one of our Tuesday night worship and prayer gatherings. By the way, if you don't know, on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, we have, we just don't know what else to call it, it's worship and prayer gathering because we worship and pray. <laughs> See how clever that is? I know. You know, uh, and so, you know, and it can run from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. You just never know, but you're free to come and go as you please. But here, here, here's what happens in there. We just, we just worship God. Somebody leads us in worship, sometimes me, sometimes Tony. And we, we, we just pray as God leads us. And it's a pretty cool time. And you're welcome to come and check it out. You're welcome to stick your toe in the water. Especially for those of you guys who are saying, is this Holy Spirit thing real? Come and check out that Tuesday night thing, and you can decide if that's real or not. But come on, check us out if you like. There's no experience necessary. There's no like little quiz given to you at the door. You know, like recite the books of the Bible backwards or anything like that. Just come on in. But it was two years ago, and some of you in the room will remember it. And uh, I just started leading worship, and we're just getting ready to pray. It's kind of shift over into a time of prayer. And one of the things that we do is we, we uh, either just take notice of the pr- many prayer requests that are turned in by you on those white cards, or we sometimes actually pray for them, but at the very least, you know, we take them home and pray for them. So so there's this, there's this sense in which these people who gather on Tuesday nights are there to pray for you all. And there are many times that God leads us to, to just pray for you guys. And so we do that. And so I'm kumbaya on my way to prayer, you know, in front of everybody, doing my thing. And we get to this place where it's time to pray, and I got that stand in the gap phrase in my head. It just came, boom, call them to stand in the gap. I didn't discern it. 
I just said it. I said, all right, tonight we're going to stand in a gap. we got all these low, these many people in the church depending on us with these prayer requests that have turned in. They're counting on you to stand in the gap between themselves and God. you got to stand in the gap. I want you to find a prayer request. I want you to stand in the gap. Are you getting this? I want you to stand in the gap. And the more that I was saying it, the more I felt like it was grating on the ears of the Holy Spirit. And then the Lord just came with a thundering revelation to me. A th- it wasn't a vision, but it was a picture. I've only had one vision in my life where I saw something outside of myself. But, it, but I've had many, as many of you have, you know that place inside of you that isn't your mind and it isn't your imagination. It's the place that the Lord speaks to you. And many times he shows you a movie. Anybody? Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right, there we go. Okay. So I was getting this picture, this very clear picture, as I was calling people to stand in the gap. And the picture was simply this. Everybody in the room, you guys were there, everybody in the room was driving a dump truck. <laughs> driving a dump truck. And doing well, too. You were getting through the gears, the whole thing, man. You get your arm out the window, the whole thing, you know. You look like you knew what you were doing. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> it was abundantly clear that it was from the Lord. And what the Lord showed me through the process of that evening was that He is never calling us to stand in the gap. But that our role as intercessors, as prayers, is simply this. is to load up the back of the truck and back it up to the cross. Mom back, mom back, mom back. Dump it right here. In faith, by faith, with faith, dump it right here at the foot of the cross and let Jesus deal with them. That's a, and that's a, that's a better way to pray. That's a better way to pray. That's a better way to pray than thinking that I have some role in somehow connecting God and often our minds are this reluctant God or this God who loves other people better than, than me because he obviously answers their prayers better. And the, it's just backing them up, mom back, mom, and just dumping it right here. And since then, uh, my prayer life has taken what I consider to be a quantum leap forward and no longer about praying in such a way as to gain God's favor or thinking that it depends nearly as much on me, but that prayer is simply a matter of delivering these delivering these people and these issues to the foot of the cross, letting Jesus be the mediator, the true mediator. I mean, I trust him to be the mediator for my sins, don't you? Then I should fully trust him to be the mediator of my prayers. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Good news, you're not the mediator. That's not what prayer is. You're not the mediator. Jesus is, and I think he can do a lot better job of it than we can, don't you? So I just have two very spiritual, important pastoral words for you this morning. Come on back. Come on back closer. Nope, nope, nope. Some of you, like me, have backed dump trucks up, and you're like, i got to be closer than that guy's saying, right? Oh, you got to trust the guy. Come on back. Closer. 
leave them all at the foot of the cross. This morning, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that. As we worship the Lord and respond to his presence and whatever he may be saying to your heart, I'd like to invite anyone who would like to, to bring your prayer request to the foot of this cross. You can see I've moved some furniture in the room today. I've just made this space available for anybody who would like to respond to this message. And maybe you're saying, I don't want to be the mediator anymore. I don't want to bear that weight. I, I want to I deliver it over to Jesus. The Bible says, cast all your care on him because he cares for you. Maybe some of you just have some very troubling things going on or some very urgent prayer things that something's got to happen. I want to encourage you to come and just leave it at the foot of the cross. And you can, you know, when, we, when you start coming, you can come for a second and go, or you can linger, you can stay the whole time. That's really entirely up to you. But Father, we, we come to this place where we love so much that you call us to have experience with you. And I pray for every person in the room now who is, um, is being touched or challenged or encouraged or whatever by this teaching. And thank you, God, that your word does come and has effect and impact on us. And right now, I just pray, Father, that every person in the room be released from the legalistic bondage of thinking that we are somehow responsible for these issues and these things of, in life that concern us but that we're, we're just the deliverers so that you can take them and bear them for us, Lord. I just pray for freedom and release for every person in the room. I pray I pray that this will be a, a move forward in everybody's prayer life and the prayer life of this church. I pray, Father, that you will come now in the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room right now and will create a space where people truly can just kind of back it up and leave it at the cross. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the wonderfully peculiar nature of this place. I just invite you to come now. Power the Holy Spirit. Come and heal our sick, Father God. And counsel our troubled, Lord. Come and set our addicts free. Come in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ransom us from the evil one, Lord.